Okay, I think we're gonna get started. Um, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining at 12.47 p.m. Uh, really a, uh, a late night uh, Shavua Shir, quite a, quite a stretch for a lot of people. I have a custom whenever beginning on Shavuos night that I actually have adopted from my Pesach Seder. At the Pesach Seder, there's a lot of pressure every year to say something new, to say a new idea. And what I do when introducing Shavuos and talking about Shavuos and what I do at my Pesach Seder is I actually say, begin with the same idea. Every single year I begin with the same idea and I like to begin by pointing out the absurdity of the custom to stay up all night. How difficult it is, how strange it is, and how at the end of the day, it doesn't even lead to any more Torah study. A lot of people, you know, they start Shavuos night and they go into a base medrash. There's a fancy schmancy scholar in residence and they hand out a source packet that's 30 pages long and they're on page three and they start tuning out and their shuckles slowly get, you know, slower and slower until it transforms into a a total nap and their head is down and they wake up, the speaker is already on page 25 of the source sheet and they're, uh, they're still on page three, they're passed out. And then they get up, they say, you know what? I'm not gonna listen to speeches, I'm gonna go, I'll pick up the paper, I'll learn something. And they stop by the, by the coffee stands, they stop to get a cup of coffee, a Danish, some rugelach, pancakes, depending on how fancy your shul is. And then they go down and they come and try to sit with a safer, with a chavrusa and learn. Before they know it, the mixture of caffeine and sugar is, is floating around in their brain. They wake up, it's three o'clock in the morning, they're covered in rugelach, and they haven't really learned anything. Why is it that we have a custom to stay up so late at night learning on Shavuos? If you were to ask me, I would say, because it's extra learning. It's a holiday that celebrates Talmud Torah. So why not stay up later and study Torah? But if you do the math, it doesn't lead to any more, it doesn't lead to any more Torah. You go to sleep, whether it's at three o'clock in the morning or, or five o'clock in the morning, the next day is totally shot. You know, you ask your spouse, you know, can I take a quick nap before the meal? You wake up at 3.30, your spouse resents you, they're upset at you, and you didn't really learn that much. When I was in yeshiva, my Rebbe, I studied in, in, uh, in Baltimore, before coming to Yeshiva University, and my Rebbe there actually posed this question. He says, it doesn't really make sense why we stay up all night trying to study Torah if it doesn't really lead to any more hours of learning. It would do much better if after the meal, you took, got a good night's sleep, and then the next day you could learn more. Why even try? And my Rebbe said something very short and very beautiful, and I begin, every time I speak about Shavuos, I begin with this idea. My Rebbe looked at the classroom and he said, because when you're in love, you do crazy things. When you're in love, when you, when you are overwhelmed with that excitement, that initial joy of love, of connection, of that relationship, you do crazy things. Earlier in dating, earlier in dating, you know, you might go on a date and you make dinner reservations, you go to Build-A-Bear, you go to a show, Whatever it is, you can have plans. Once you really start falling in love with the person, once you start forming that connection, then it's difficult 
Crying doesn't, doesn't even have any boundaries. You want to stay up all night talking to the person. When you're in love, you do crazy things. And that's what the Medrash says, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says on the Pasuk, that says, Vayashim Avram Baboker by Akedas Yitzchak, that Avram woke up extra early. Why do you wake up so early? He couldn't sleep. What happened? So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, Ahavam Mikalkeles es Hashura. Love, Ahavam Mikalkeles, breaks down Hashura the sequential. When you're in love, when you're excited, you do things that don't make sense. So whether it's staying up late on Shavuos night, whether it's joining a Zoom call at 11.52 p.m., it doesn't make sense, and that's part of the point. Because we are reenacting, we are reanimating ourselves with that initial love, with that initial fervor of Talmud Torah, of Matan Torah, to demonstrate the fact that when we're in love, we do things that don't really make sense. I want to talk tonight about a subject that is not really spoken about a great deal, but I'm sure a lot of people have been thinking about it and have been having uh, even, even not explicit, but subconscious questions about it. I know normally with these Zoom shiurim, they're used to kind of just sitting straight with the speaker. I want to do a little show and tell, but I want to show you what I stare at every day at my office. So right now, this is the image behind me. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to show you what I look at. And I'm going to move in here to show you an image that's on my wall. This is a piece of American memorabilia. And you can see over here, there's a newspaper on the wall. This is an original newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, right? Wednesday, November 3rd, right after the election. A very famous picture where President Truman is holding this up with great pride. Because on the headlines of the paper, it says, Dewey defeats Truman. Thomas Dewey, who I believe was the governor of New York at the time, was running a very close election race. Again, President Harry Truman, and they called the election too early. We've all lived through this a second time. They called the election too early, and the big headline was Dewey defeats Truman. And for a lot of people, it's, for me, it's a testament never count anybody out. Even if the headline says that you've already failed, even if the headline says that you've already lost, don't always believe the headlines. But there's another idea and there's another reason why I find that headline so amazing. Because it's a demonstration of a very fascinating part of the general study of history called alternative history. If you look at that headline, you could kind of scratch your head and wonder, what would the universe, what would America, what would Israel look like if we didn't have a President Truman and instead we got a President Dewey, if that headline was actually correct? It's an alternative timeline that you could stare at and say, I wonder what this would be. For most people during quarantine, the... For those who haven't been logging on to Zoom, Shiurim, and spending time studying Torah, maybe, uh, maybe it's you, maybe it's a grandchild, maybe it's somebody you know, but the focus for most of America during quarantine was a documentary, a 10-part documentary called The Last Dance, which was a documentary about the final season of Michael Jordan. Now, the documentary is it's a great documentary, really interesting to watch. 
But anybody who studied even a little bit of sports, and if you download the source sheets, which are on the page, I have, I have from Sports Illustrated, they did a fascinating story called What If? What if, what if this team would have drafted a different player? And when you read the last, when you watch the last dance, there are so many what if questions surrounding Michael Jordan. You don't need to be a sports buff to know two things. Number one, Michael Jordan was not drafted first in the NBA. He was drafted third. The first draft pick was Hakeem Olajuwon. The second draft pick was Sam Bowie, who was a total bust by the Portland Trailblazers. And the third draft pick was Michael Jordan. And anybody with even a nominal interest in sports or no interest in sports, you wonder what would have happened if somebody else would have drafted the great Michael Jordan first. In Sports Illustrated, they ran a feature called What If? And they asked, what if Michael Jordan had stuck with baseball? What would have happened? All sports fans, they always like to know, imagine that alternative timeline, how that would have unfolded. In Bill Simmons' great book, The Book of Basketball, he writes as follows. Has an entire chapter called the what if game it's an entire chapter about the alternative history questions that sports fans ask themselves he writes in the introduction of that chapter we spend an inordinate amount of time playing the what if game what if i never got married what if i had gone to harvard instead of yale what if i hadn't punched my boss in the face you can't go back you know you can't go back but you keep rehashing it anyway for most people, alternative history is kind of a nice parlor game. It's something you talk about with your friends. You know, when, when you're on a break, you talk about sports, you talk about history. I actually believe that this question is at the center of Jewish history, and it's at the center of Matan Torah. If you look on page two of the sources, and again, the sources, you can go back on the page. They're online. You can look at them. Most people on Shavuos focus on Matan Torah on the beginning of the Harsinai story. I want to fast forward to the end of the Harsinai story when the Jewish people left Harsinai. They came to Harsinai in the beginning of Parshat Yisro. Interestingly enough, the entire story of Matan Torah has bookended with the story of Yisro. It begins with Yisro coming and it ends in Parshat Bahaloscha with Yisro leaving. And that's the end of the Harsinai story. At the end of the story, right after Yisro leaves, and right when they're about, right when they leave Harsinai, the Pusik says one of the most famous Pesukim in the Torah. It says, "Vayehi ben Soa ha'aron, vayomer Moshe, kumu Hashem v'yafutzu aivecha, v'yanusu misonecha mipanecha, uvenucha yomer shuva Hashem revavot alfa Yisrael." The Pesukim that we say every time that we take out a Sefer Torah. That Moshe says, rise up, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our enemies should be scattered, they should flee before me. And when it rested, when the Aaron rested, said, return HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to the thousands of families of Klal Yisroel. And the question is, why are these the psukim that we say every time we take out the Sefer Torah from the Aaron? Why are these the psukim that bracket the end of the Harsinai experience? And really, in many ways, the most glaring question is that if you've ever opened up a Sefer Torah and you've looked at these psukim, and I have in the source packet the actual Sefer Torah, they're bracketed with two nuns. 
there's a whole question that the Maharshal deals with in a tshuva of how the nun should be structured. But there are brackets. There are two big nuns right before Vayibin Soharot and right after Vayibin Soharot. And the question is, what are those nuns doing there? What are they doing for business? What we don't read them. Why do we have upside and they're upside down? What, why do we have them? The nun hafuchos. The Torah in Shabbos on Daf Kuftes Zion actually says that these two psukim form in a safer Torah of themselves. It's its own safer. Normally, we're used to thinking of the five books of Moses, Bereshis, Shmos, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Devarim. Says the Gemara, no, there are really seven books. There's Bereshis, Shmos, Vayikra, the first third of Bamidbar, Vayihibin Soha'aron, the last third of Bamidbar, and then Devarim. This is its own safer, Vayihibin Soha'aron, these two psukim, just these two, form its own safer, just like Safer Barachas, just like Safer Shemotes, these two Psukim form their own Safer. And it's very strange, like their own Safer. Gemara also says that these, these Psukim, they're out of place, they don't belong here. What are these Psukim? Why are they significant? So the Baal Haturim, which I have in the sources as well, has a beautiful allusion to the fact that these two Psukim that we say every time we bring out a Safer Torah. These two psukim are their own Sefer Torah. He has a beautiful, he has a beautiful allusion to that. Says the Baal HaTurim, the Pasuk Vayihi Bin Soa, in the first Pasuk, if you count out the number of words in the Pasuk, Vayihi Bin Soa Ha'aram Vayomer Moshe Kumo Hashem V'yafutsu Aidecha V'yanusu Misanecha Mipanecha, there are 12 words in that Pasuk. Says the Baal HaTurim, Kamo Sheyesh B'Pasuk U'lechol Hayad HaChazaka. The 12 words in this Pasuk are the same amount of the 12 words of the last Pasuk in the entire Torah that, you know, the, the final words in Vizos HaBracha, when Moshe Rabbeinu breaks the, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu was L'chol Yad HaChazach, Kol Yisroel, read that, there are 12 words in that too. Uba Pasuk Uvenucha, and in the second Pasuk, Uvenucha Yomar, Shuva Hashem Revavos, Alpha Yisroel, there are Yeshbo Shiva, Tables. There are seven words. The Moshe Yates the Pasuk Bereshis. Bereshis Baralokim Asashamayim Vesaaretz. Seven words. So says the Balaturim, the same way that the whole Torah ends with 12 words and begins with seven words, this also is like its own little mini safer. It's got 12 words that it begins with and seven words that it ends with. The Hutchilas HaTorah Lomar, this is this illusion is telling us So anybody who's been paying attention, you realize that the illusion of the Baal HaTurim does not make a lot of sense. If you're trying to tell me that these two sukkim, correspond to the last Pesach in the Torah, and the first Pesach in the Torah, it's backwards. is 12 words like the last Pesach in the Torah, and Uvenucha Yomar, the second Pasuk, is seven words like the first Pasuk in the Torah. Why is it backwards? It should be the reverse. Rav Tzadok HaKohen Melublin, who I love, I did my master's thesis on Rav Tzadok and Rebel under the great Dr. Yaakov Elman, student of Rav Hutner, who's my Rebbe, passed away two summers ago. And he writes, Rav Tzadok writes as follows. He asks on the Balaturim, it's a cute illusion, but it doesn't really make sense. 
it should be in reverse. Vayihibin so ha'aron should correspond to the first Pasuk, and Uvenu Yomar should correspond to the last Pasuk in the Torah. Desvav Tzavah. The Baal HaTurim Parsha Zu Isa B'Pasuk Vayihibin Zohar Yud-based tables, Vayihibin Zohar's 12 words, Vayihibin Zohar's 12 words, Vayihibin Zohar's 12 why is Vayibin Sora corresponding to the last Pusik in the Torah and Uvenucha Yomar corresponding to the first Pusik in the Torah? The correspondence is backwards. If you want to explain this is its own Sefer Torah, you have it in reverse. To understand the significance of these two psukim and to answer Ipsavuk, I want to delve deeper into the concept of alternative history within Jewish history. Jews are very nervous about alternative history. It makes them very nervous and it always gets Jews into trouble. There's a fabulous article that was published on the Lair House. I see some Lair House editors on here. And there was a fabulous article that was published by my dear friend, Dr. Zev LF, that spoke about alternative history, imagining what could have been if YU had a different history. He imagines what would have happened that instead of Dr. Lamb becoming the president of YU, if Dr. Emanuel Rackman, who was the other major candidate, became the president instead. And he delves into kind of the alternative timelines of what could have happened. In there, he has an amazing footnote where Zev knows everything in Jewish history. He has an amazing footnote from tradition in the summer of 1976, where Gary Epstein, who's now a lawyer, who uh, I know his son, Benji Epstein, wrote, wrote a marvelous book on, uh, on mindfulness. Shout out to Benji Epstein. So Gary Epstein, his father, wrote the one article in Tradition Magazine that has a disclaimer, like a Surgeon's General's warning, like, be careful, this article might offend you. Usually you don't see that in Tradition. I mean, you might get offended by the multi-syllabic words, only so many times you could see the word ontological and axiological within a couple sentences. But there's a disclaimer. I'm going to read the disclaimer for you. Although the editors of tradition regard the state of Israel as a pivotal instrument instrumentality for the survival of Judaism in the modern world, they deem it important to open the pages of this journal for the discussion of controversial positions. So they realize they're about to publish something that's not so okay. What was the name of the article? The name of the article, which is on the source sheet, is Could Judaism Survive Israel? And it's an imagined alternative timeline of what would happen if Israel got destroyed. And the letters poured in the tradition lambasting Gary Epstein. How could you even imagine such a thing? One letter started as follows. A more tasteless article than the one by Gary Epstein on this self-serving proposition that Judaism can survive the fall of Israel, I have not read in a long time. Another article said, to paraphrase the words of a great gone, the Kutzker, much of this article should not have been thought about, more of it not spoken about, and most of it not put into printed form. 
like the great Putzker. Not everything thought needs to be written. Not everything written needs to be published. You shouldn't have written this. The article says, far from finding an imperative in examining every contingencies, our sages have taught us to not to open up our mouths to Satan. What do you need to examine this for? What do you need to even think about alternative timelines for? Why would you have a, a newspaper on your wall that says Dewey defeats Truman? Imagine what could have been. Truman was the one who, who um, allowed the state of Israel to come in from America. Why would you even imagine that? What's the point of alternative history? So not all alternative history has such great uh, import as I began with, with uh, The Last Dance and Michael Jordan, you know, sports fans like alternative history because it's, uh, it's a little bit more playful. The one that I like because my family, I was born in, in the five towns of my father. is from North Adams, Massachusetts. My father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather are all from Massachusetts. So we all grew up as Red Sox and Celtics fans. So the big question that all Celtics fans want to know which I have on page four of the source sheet, is what if Len Bias had an overdose? Len Bias was a famous first round draft pick for the Boston Celtics. He was supposed to be the combination like a Michael Jordan and a Magic Johnson together. And he died of a drug overdose after the draft night. And people would have imagined what could have been with that Celtics dynasty had he, could have, had, had he continued with them. There's a second question a lot of people this is the one that we began with. It's on the top of page five. What if the 1984 draft turned out differently? Which is the big question. And what would have happened if Michael Jordan was drafted by the Trailblazers, by the Rockets? I like the ones, you know, you could find on YouTube a lot of times. You could find videos of famous television shows and movies and look at who else auditions for the show. There's a show on NBC a while ago called The Office. And you could look, who else uh, auditioned for the role of, of Jim, aside from John Krasignitsky? Who else auditioned for Dwight? Um, you know, you could see the other people. You could imagine, what would the show would have looked like? In, uh, in movie history, the big question is in The Godfather, they were neck and neck for who was going to play Michael Corleone. It came down to Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And they liked Robert De Niro so much that they actually casted him in Godfather II to play the original Don Corleone. But these questions are, they're not so substantial. But there are other areas in Jewish history, like when Gary Epstein asked the question about the survival of Israel, the survival of Judaism without Israel, that can be very upsetting. There's an amazing book by Gabriel Rosenfeld called The What Ifs of Jewish History. It's published by Cambridge. And this book takes the questions of alternative history outside of sports and movies and television and talks about it within the narrative of the Jewish people. I'm just gonna read some of the chapters for you because they're so fascinating. What if the Exodus never happened? What if the temple in Jerusalem had not been destroyed by the Romans? And keep in mind that question of alternative history is not just addressed by Rene Bloch, who writes the article in the, in the, uh, in the book. It's also asked by the Orachayim in his commentary on the Torah, asking what would have happened if Moshe Rabbeinu would have entered into Eretz Yisroel and the Beis Hamikdash would have never been destroyed. He asked these alternative history questions. 
What if Spinoza had repented? All of these, I love these questions. It's, it's kind of an imagination. There are so many, you know, in a, in a more dire way about the Holocaust. What if Adolf Hitler had been assassinated in 1939? What if the Nazis had won the Battle of, of El Amain? What if the final solution had been completed? What if the Holocaust had been averted? Now, these questions are far more jarring and there's a lot more at stake. To think about the trajectory of the Jewish people, to think about the signposts of Judaism and imagine anything happening dif differently can almost seem heretical at best, meaning it's either a waste of time or it's downright heresy. In the introduction to this book, Gavriel Rosenfeld, who's the editor, actually talks about the value of these questions. And I wanna read some of the introduction. It's on page six in the sources, the bottom two paragraphs. I'm gonna start at the top actually. These scenarios and countless others like them are undeniably provocative. He realizes they're provocative, but they beg a larger question. Why do we ask what if in the first place? Not surprisingly, counterfactual speculation is driven by many different motives. These motives vary considerably depending on who is doing the speculating. Among scholars, however, asking what if serves several important analytical purposes. To begin with, scholars employ counterfactual reasoning to better understand the forces of historical causality, meaning what caused what event. Although historians are often loath to admit it, what if questions are indispensable for determining why events happen? Whenever we make the causal claim that X cause Y, we implicitly affirm that Y would not have occurred in the absence of X. To cite one well-known event, the assertion that the United States Air Force is dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 enabled the country to defeat Japan in World War II, which was ordered by President Truman, whose paper I showed you was sitting on my wall, is closely related to the counterfactual claim that if the bombs had not been dropped, the Allies might not have emerged victorious in the Pacific Theater. Well, the first reason of why somebody would ask this question is to find causality. If the bombs wouldn't have been dropped, maybe the war wouldn't have been ended. And in, and in a smaller plane, the Bulls never would have been a championship if Michael Jordan was snatched up earlier in the draft. And maybe the Godfather wouldn't have become as famous if Robert De Niro was playing Michael Corleone instead of, instead of Al Pacino. You could ask yourselves, and it's a question of causality. But the final paragraph that I have on this page, I think is the most important and the one that I wanna really dwell upon with you. The third and perhaps primary reason we ask what if lies in the broader area of human psychology. It is our very nature as human beings to wonder what if. At various junctures in our lives, we may speculate about what might've happened if certain events had or had not occurred in our past. What if we had lived in a different place, attended a different school, taken a different job, married a different spouse? When we ask such questions, we are really expressing our feelings about the present. We're either grateful that things worked out as they did, or we regret that they did not occur differently. The same concerns are involved in the realm of counterfactual history. What a moving insight 
on why we ask these questions. We ask these questions not to reflect on the past, but to better understand our appreciation or our frustration and regret with the present. And I think these questions are extraordinarily relevant right now, whether we're asking them explicitly or implicitly. Anytime that you see a backyard wedding, a front porch bar mitzvah, a simcha that you couldn't attend, something, a Zoom bris, you're asking yourself, you know, what, what, how would this have felt differently if we were able to be together? Imagine that the last three months looked so differently. It changed in an instant. Imagine our March, our April, our May unfolded in a different way, an alternative timeline. The people who we could still be with, the families who could be together for Yuntif, the people who could celebrate together, communities who could join together. And when we ask that question, we're not asking just a question about causality in the past of who's responsible, who caused it. We're asking a question about the present moment that we're in. Do we regret it? Are we frustrated by it? Are we able to find some optimism, some inspiration? When we think of our families, of our spouses, when we think of our professions and our jobs, and we think I could have gone into law, into medicine, into computer science, and you wonder for a moment, what if life unfolded differently? That question of alternative history is not about a counterfactual claim of causality. It's about accessing and appreciating the present moment that we are in right now. It is with that that I want to really return to the nuns, to the story of Ayihi bin Soah Ha'aron. On the last page of the sources on page seven, on the very top, Rabbi Soloveitchik has a that is also explained and presented by Ragitzik Isaac Chaver in his Svarim and by many others. Rabbi Soloveitchik expresses it so beautifully. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, Vayihi bin Soah Ha'aron and Uvenucha Yomar is the alternative history of the Jewish people. It's the imaginary timeline of what would have happened had we left Har Sinai at the moment that we departed from our encampment around Har Sinai and we would have gone straight into Eretz Yisroel. And instead, Bamidbar starts to deteriorate with the Misonanim, with the complainers. All of the stories and our entire trajectory begins to deteriorate. And Vayihi bin Soah Ha'aron is bracketed with those nuns because it's a safer Bethay Atmo because it's an alternative timeline within the Torah itself. Says Rabbi Salavechik, there would have been no need for an inverted nun at the beginning and an inverted nun at the end. The verse would have been the climax of the whole story, not an inversion. Jewish history would have taken a different course. Had Moshe entered Eretz Yisrael, our history would never have been taken from us. The Messianic era would have commenced with the conquest of the land of Israel by Moshe. It was then that Vayihi bin Soahara lost its place. It's not in the right place. Instead of the march bringing them closer to the land of Israel, it took them away from the promised land. The nuns were inverted, and the inversion, Jewish history, became inverted and is still inverted. The Parsha is still dislocated. 
We cannot say we are setting forth with the same assurance and certitude that Moshe displayed to his father-in-law just 24 hours before the permissive multitude inverted the process of redemption. Due to this inversion, the Messianic era did not commence in Moses' time, nor have we witnessed the fulfillment of the prophecy on that day, the Lord and his name will be one. Let's return to Rav Tzadok's question, because this is really where the instructive nature of alternative history comes to the fore when thinking about this, this, these two psukim. Rav Tzadok asks, why is the correspondence backwards? Why is it that Vayihi bin Soha'aron corresponds to the last psukim in the Torah, and Uvenucha Yomar corresponds to the first psukim? Because that is the avoda, that is the effort and the direction that we need when we think of these alternative timelines. That we need to take the end and make it into a beginning. When we look at our families and our careers and our communities, all of the different directions and roads we could have taken and could have gone, it's very easy to look at the present moment with an air of regret with an air of pain, with a question of what if I had gone in that other direction? And instead, as the illusion of the Balaturim is telling us, this inverted Parsha, this alternative timeline is deliberately a backwards correspondence because we take the ending, we take the end of the Sefer and we make it a beginning. The beginning is always the time when we have the most excitement, when we're setting out in college, when we just start dating, when we're just picking a career, and we have this excitement of the whole world is in front of us. And it's at that moment that we think this is the most pristine, pure moment. Vayihi bin Soha'aron corresponds to the last passage in the Torah as a reminder that wherever you land, whatever timeline you find yourself in the present, and have the same inspiration, the same commitment, and the same focus that you did with the first Pasuk, the beginning of your journey, when you were first deciding your career, when you were first figuring out what to do with your life. And this, I believe, was said so beautifully in a speech given reflecting on teaching Kafka, and it's the last source that I have on this page. <clears throat> David Foster Wallace has a beautiful reflection, and there's a a sentence in here where he talks about the difficulty of teaching Kafka. And he says, and it is this, I think, that makes Kafka's wit inaccessible to children whom our culture has trained to see jokes as entertainment and entertainment as reassurance. It's not that students don't get Kafka's humor, but that, they've taught, that we've taught them to see humor as something you get. The same way we've taught them that a self, our own lives, our own decisions, is something you just have. No wonder they cannot appreciate the really central Kafka joke. That the horrific struggle to establish a human self results in a self whose humanity is inseparable from that horrific struggle. Listen to this sentence. This is one of the most beautiful sentences I've ever read. That our endless and impossible journey toward home is in fact our home. That our endless and impossible journey toward home is in fact our home. So many of us spend our times ruminating on the different choices, career, family, community, 
that we could have made? What if I moved to the other community we had checked out? What if I had accepted the job in the other institution? What if I'd gone to a different school? And that struggle makes it seem like we have this pristine self and get sullied by taking wrong paths. But what Vayihi bin Soa Ha'aron reminds us is that you can take the ending, you can take where you landed and transform it into a beration. You can transform it into a beginning. The ending becomes the beginning. And that's what alternative history is all about. We can take our present, we can take all of our anxiousness, all of our insecurities and anxiety about the decisions of our life. And that, and that endless and impossible journey toward home is in fact our home. That all of the alternative questions that we ask and reflect in our lives, that's part of the Torah too. And it can stand there and remain there and still allow us to embrace the present spot where we landed. And I think that entering into Shavuos, particularly in this time, we don't have shuls to go to, our communities by and large are still closed. We don't have the scholar and residents to come kick off Shavuos. And we're going to be spending Shavuos in our homes and in our living rooms. And we can look around and say, what if, imagine if we had what, what the shul advertised in Elul, who was going to be here Shavuos, and what the pancakes would have tasted like, and the rugelach, and the coffee, and how powerful Shavuos could have been, and all of the what ifs and all of the alternative timelines. Or we can transform the ending where we are right now into a new Vayihi bin Soha'aro, a new opening that we take out our Torah and we say to ourselves and each other that exactly where we landed is where we should be. Wishing everybody a great Yontif in uplifting Shavuos. Thank you all so much. A good Yontif.